It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Jessica Eyes. And she is a a postdoctoral researcher at Purdue University. And uh, she is also with the Purdue Climate Change Research Center and the Purdue University Brian Lamb School of Communication. And her areas of interest are climate change as well as food security, agriculture, and global chronic stressors. And uh, she has books including How to Feed the World and the Communication Scarcity in Agriculture and Other Works. So it's a pleasure to welcome Jessica to the show. Thank you so much, David. I'm really happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, especially considering the topic we're going to be talking about is something of uh, great interest to uh, and should be of interest to all of us. And that is partly to do with the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize that has been given to the United Nations Food uh, World Food Program and the efforts uh, for, of them to combat uh, hunger. And... Uh, so it, it's it's wonderful to be able to talk about this in such a time, especially in, a, of course, a COVID nineteen. Which I'm guess I'm guessing you could probably call that a, a stressor. Yes, that's definitely a stressor, and like most global co- chronic stressors, it does exacerbate hunger mm-hmm. in many places in the world. Mm-hmm. So before we get into this a little bit further, if you don't mind, we're going to be talking about the article you wrote in in, in the. Um, uh, in the conversation about this, but uh, this may be may sound like a silly question. Why why do we have hunger at all on this planet? You, is that a silly question? <laughs> no, that's not a silly question. Actually, I think that might be the most important question that we should be asking ourselves because we do have enough food to feed everybody in the world, but we aren't. And I think that that question gets at some deep issues that make a lot of us feel very uncomfortable um, because it has really everything to do with inequity. Mm. So the fact that we have a world of people who have and we have a world of people who have not. So I see from the article about 820 million people, that's about one in nine worldwide, don't have enough to eat. That's correct. Mm -hmm. It's really alarming when you think about that, because when you go about your daily life and you interact with people, we interact maybe not so much during uh, the pandemic, but during our normal lives, we easily interact with nine people every day. Um, But we're generally not, at least those of us who are from, well, I'm from the United States, but Mm -hmm. those of us who are from Canada generally might not be interacting with somebody who's um, experiencing food insecurity, but you also might be, and you might not be aware of it yeah. as well. Um, so that's easily people you could be interacting with every day. But another thing that I like to point out about that number, numbers are numbers can be really difficult for us to process. So I, I study communication. Mm-hmm. And so when we say something like 820 million people, it's almost incomprehensible for us to process that sure. number. That's why when you think about something like one in nine, Mm. then it's a lot easier for you to fathom. But something like I like to point out to humanize this even further is um, we're talking also about children, Mm -hmm. right? So these aren't just adults. Um, We're also talking about children who are Mm. incredibly vulnerable and whose lifelong health and wellness is going to be impacted 
by food insecurity at a young age. And for children who experience food insecurity at a young age, they cannot recover from the impacts that that has on their health. I understand that it even goes beyond that into the womb of, of developing. Correct. In, in, yeah. Yeah. It, when you when you read this information, and it's quite alarming to think that in this day and age, that we are still dealing with and have this issue. And I know, you know, the first thing I thought about when I was reading this was how did this all start? How how did how did food shortage become an issue? And then as I got into it, of course, I saw there's issues of conflict. And I understand, you know, where, where uh, conflict can be used, that people use starvation as a means to try uh, against their, whoever they're warring against or whoever they're in conflict with. And I understand that, but you would think that might recover at some point. So are we talking about areas on the planet where there just is no way to grow food, but people are living in these areas? No, that's actually not what we're talking about. And I have to say that you're really asking all the right questions. And um, in almost every area of the world, there is food available. Mm. But what happens is that if people who live in poverty cannot grow their own food, they may not be able to afford to purchase the food that exists within their community. So it's very rare that there's actually a place where there is no food available. Um, It does happen. But what you're generally looking at is a place where people cannot afford to buy the food that they need. And that's where I think the tragedy of this really comes into play. And when you say, where does this come from and how does this exist? This forces us to look at this in a deep, deeply philosophical manner. And what I might say is, how does this happen? Is it happens because of a lack of empathy Mm. Um, or it happens because we other people. We Mm. see ourselves as one group and we see people as another group. So we protect our group and we start to kind of dehumanize other groups of people when really we know that we are all the same, right? We are all people um, and we do all deserve to have these rights. But it's very easy, especially in today's political climate, um, to perceive other people as being threats to us Um, and to stop seeing them as people who are like us share similar concerns, like the desperate desire to, you know, care for our families and feed our families or to have opportunity. Um, so if we're really getting down to the core of why we still have hunger in our world today, I would say it's probably us not building within ourselves a feeling of empathy for people who may not be exactly like us. Mm. So the United Nations World Food Program uh, has been around for some time, and it's been trying to help with this situation. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So the Nobel Peace Peace Prize was awarded to the World Food Program, um, particularly for its efforts to combat hunger and foster conditions of peace in conflict-affected areas, and particularly preventing the use of hunger as a weapon of war. Yeah, And I, I find this choice very interesting because I feel that it really underscores a growing concern around the world about increasing food insecurity. Mm. So, so the World Food Program uh, was created in the 60s, the 1960s, and at the behest of, of President uh, Dwight Eisenhower. I wasn't aware of that. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, and um, this was 
his way of urging other nations to create a system of providing food to member states of the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's actually now grown to be one of the world's largest humanitarian agencies. And last year alone, it assisted 97 million people in 88 countries. I saw that. And I was really uh, taken with the fact that it really is a self-sufficient uh, operating uh, program with its own trucks, its own planes, its own people. Uh, it, it really does have the whole uh, – it has, has everything there uh, able to help people. That's right. And something that I really like to draw attention to is that over 90% of its 17,000 staff members mm. are based in the countries where the agency provides assistance. Yes. So that's usually a very good sign because yeah. that means that it, the, the funds and the staff are in the place where the people need help taking action. Mm. Going back to the comment about food as a weapon of war, what do we are you and I'm not I'm not sure if you have these numbers, but I'm just wondering what if we have a percentage do we know is the the the, the conflict is causing uh, in, on the global level this this lack of of food uh, being you know reaching people is there is there a percentage of what is what the conflict is uh, is, is a part of in this so i don't know the percentage of that however um, my colleague dr jerry shively who writes about this in the book i edited how to feed the world um, explains that actually the majority he does there's no exact st- statistic but right. the majority of hunger in the world is due to conflict. Mm. And now we have two more stressors, of course. We have the, the COVID-19 situation, which you point out that it, it, uh, it really revealed flaws that are both uh, in political and economic systems. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So um, I really like to discuss the pandemic in relation to climate change, okay. actually, when sure. it comes to like testing, kind of testing our systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is what I would describe as an urgent crisis, which means that we need to respond to it very quickly. Mm. Um, But in the long term, less people will be impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic than will be impacted by climate change, Mm -hmm. which is hard for people to imagine right now, but it is the truth. Okay. So when climate change is what I would describe as a very important crisis, but it is not, it does not feel as urgent to Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, So what has happened with the COVID-19 pandemic is we've sort of tested our systems to see how we can respond to crises, like to a, to a crisis, Mm. because as climate change continues to worsen, we are going to be experiencing, it's going to be crisis after crisis. Right. Um, So what we've seen is that a lot of our global systems, um, I can point to my, own country, the United States, has uh, failed to react in an agile and humane way to protect the most vulnerable members of our population. And you can see that in this in this instance, like, for instance, um, you know, what we would call blue collar workers or, you know, essential workers, people who are like delivering our food, um, people who are performing other 
what we call essential functions. Um, maybe they haven't actually received the appropriate protections, at least in the United States, in terms of uh, the equipment they need to protect themselves, the time off, they paid time off mm. they need to protect themselves. So what we've seen is we haven't been able to react in an agile way to protect all of our citizens. And so we've kind of tested our systems. We've seen that they're not working and we need to adjust these for the future crises we will face so that we can do a better job. Recently, we we did an interview on more and more of the world is becoming um, desertified, including the United States and parts of Canada, because of the farming methods that have been used over the last 70, 80 years. Um, you know, so because of, say, single-use um, seeds and tilling the land uh, constantly, it has depleted the earth of the nutrients that it needs. And then we've been adding more and more chemicals to the to the fields to get them to grow and to prevent uh, insects, uh, you know, those kind of things. And now what's happening is that we're seeing this, this drought uh, happening in, in parts of the country. I guess that goes back to the... Uh, to the Dust Bowl era, era in, in the United States as well when that happened because of a, a similar kind of thing. So we're, we're kind of creating our own, uh, and that, of course, adds to, I'm sure you're probably aware, it adds to the, the climate uh, crisis that we're having because as more and more of the land becomes less fertile and becomes dry, there is less moisture because it escapes and then it heats up more and it's this big, big constant circle. So we're, we're kind of adding to it ourselves. Yes, and I think that this point actually gets to something very interesting that uh, I try to emphasize a lot, and it's 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 the, and my colleague writes about this very well in How to Feed the World, mm. and it's it's this point. So much of the technology that we have used has been destructive mm -hmm. to the earth in terms of overuse of fertilizers um, in terms of big monocultures. Um, however, reverting back to traditional forms of agriculture will not be, will not give us the capacity to feed the number of people that live on our planet today. Mm. So what we actually need to do is use our technology to develop environmentally friendly and sustainable ways of growing crops that care for and nurture the earth, but also allow us to produce more than how we would using traditional methods. Mm. So we need to take the technologies that we have and develop and innovate to create technologies that are going to not just save us by feeding us, but save our earth mm. as well, which we need obviously, to sustain our life. My guest here on the show is Jessica Eyes, and she is a postdoctoral researcher at Purdue University. Yeah, this is in Indiana, I believe. That's correct. West Lafayette, Indiana. Right. And uh, you are also uh, part of the Climate Change Research Center there, as well as the Brian Lamb School of Communication. And her in your interests are in climate change, as well as food security, agriculture, and global chronic stressors. And that's something we kind of are, are talking about. But the, as I was mentioning just before, uh, that the, the Global Hunger Index that you can see in the article uh, really points out the areas, of course, Africa uh, is, is a huge area that looks like it has a lot of the uh, alarming and extremely alarming uh, food shortages that we are talking about. 
That's correct. And a lot of that also has to do with population growth as well, mm. because what you'll see in many parts and uh, many countries in Africa, um, they still have very high fertility. So mm. you'll find that the average number of children that each woman has is quite high comparative to the rest of the world. So not only do they experience food insecurity, but they also have a very high population growth, which makes it a very difficult situation. Right. And now, Jessica, you know, we started the conversation talking about the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize that was given to the, the United Nations World Food Program for its efforts to combat food hunger and foster conditions for peace and uh, in conflict areas. So my question around that is this. If conflict is part of this issue, it, it sounds like like what the World Food Organization program has uh, going on and what it's doing, it, it might be up against a constant battle of of, uh, of trying to get food to people that need it. Correct. We cannot eliminate hunger without establishing peace. Um, conflict causes rampant food insecurity by disrupting infrastructure and social stability and making it hard for supplies to get to people who need them. Um, and we might even see that warring parties use starvation as a strategy. And yet it also sounds like that's part of the issue in itself. Um, conflict may come out of a lack of <laughs> enough and, and then creates those, those situations where you end up with food being used as a weapon of war. Right, exactly. So if you can imagine what would happen in your own community, if so imagine your own community and imagine that you are not able to get the supplies you need to feed your family. Imagine what kind of panic or terror you might experience and what that might drive you to do mm -hmm. um, in order to secure the food you need. For, for instance, if you have children, mm -hmm. um, I know most people, if you ask them really what would they do to get food for their children, it's a, it's a terrible question. Nobody wants to yeah. think about that, but it really, it really pushes you to a point where you understand why that can provoke conflict and yeah. why it can deepen fault lines or fuel grievances. Um, of course, if a, if a population is then experiencing extreme food insecurity for a long time, they'll be very weak. It'll be a very weakened yep. population. And in that sense, you might not see as much, um, and that is why it is used as a strategy of war, because if a population is very hungry, they are very weak and they will acquiesce to almost anything. I, I guess when I was talking about the the inability in areas to produce food and that, you know, is that part of the issue is because we also hear about the the in in uh, parts of the world where clean water is an issue and, you know, or just mm -hmm. having water. And, and of course, you need water to grow things. Correct. So there are parts of the world that cannot produce um, certain types of food. And there are parts of the world that normally can produce food, but may experience a drought or extreme flood um, with climate change. Their seasons might be increasingly disrupted. And then, you know, for a year or two, they might be experiencing insecurity. However, we do have the capacity to uh, provide food to those regions with the surplus we have in other places. So it, it isn't a matter of us not having enough. It's a matter of those regions that don't have any, how do we get what we have to them? Mm -hmm. Would you say that we are winning the battle? I would say that we are not. 
actually. Mm. Um, I think that I would love to see a renewed interest in, in passion in, in people around this issue. Um, it, it really is to me. And when I think about it, it is the most, I think the most devastating and heart wrenching issue that we face in 2020 is that we have so much wealth and we have so much technology and there are, this is, it's a very emotional topic for me, honestly, to think that there are children in the world right now who don't have enough to eat. Right. And there are parents in the world who have to watch their children not have enough to eat. So this to me, I feel like, I think maybe sometimes we feel a little bit apathetic or we feel a little bit disenfranchised. We feel like maybe it's cliche to, you know, hold on to ideals. Um, but I think we need to, we need to kind of reinvigorate ourselves around looking at the world with compassion and feeling really strong sense of obligation to take care of each other, even if these people are not in our backyard, but maybe in other places in the world, because we've all been complicit in creating the system that exists in our world today. And we all need to take responsibility for it. Well, the fact that that you say it's an emotional issue, I think it should be an emotional issue for all of us, just like you you said, because it it does affect us all. And I think that if anything, the the COVID-19 situation has shown us that we are not separate. We are all one planet. We are all one yard. <laughs> and uh, and eventually, whatever affects one person uh, could and and possibly will affect all of us, no matter where we are. I agree with you. So, Jessica, I have a question for you then. What what drives you? What what makes you, uh, you know, you, you, you were getting quite emotional there about this, this topic. So, uh, you know, I could easily see how this you know, looking at this, you say we're, we're probably not winning the war on this right now. So what, what drives you to, to keep going and, and gives you hope on this? So I was always um, a very sensitive and empathetic child. So, and I have a great imagination. So if you describe something to me, if you describe a situation to me, um, and I was an avid reader, I've read, I've read thousands of books. So if you describe a situation to me, I can imagine it in my head. Right. Um, I don't have children, but I have dear friends who have children and relatives who have children. And I can understand or imagine what they must be feeling. Right. Or what they would feel in the face of this. And also, um, I can imagine what it would feel like if it were happening to me. And I think sometimes we think that we deserve the life that we have, like somehow we are better than other people. And that's why we have the life that we have, Mm. but we have the life that we have in almost every case because of a lottery of our birth. Mm. It isn't that many, some of us have worked very, very hard to get where we have. Mm -hmm. I've worked very hard to get where I have from Mm -hmm. detasseling corn in Wisconsin when I was 13 to having a PhD. Now I I worked hard to get here, but I was also born into a family that valued education. Right. Okay. And so if I hadn't been born into that type of family, I don't know what would have happened. Right. And I was born in the United States. It's just a lottery of birth. I didn't do, there's nothing intrinsically in me that makes me worthy of this life more than another person. Mm. And so, and so when we look at situations, for instance, where we are criticizing immigrants who tried to enter into countries like the United States or maybe Canada. Uh, 
I know I have a different cultural perspective being from the United States, um, we, but we have different policies. But when we look at these people, I mean, imagine what would be so terrible in their home country that would drive them to leave everything they know and to move to another place where they don't speak the language and they know they will be unwelcome. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a sort of desperation that I think so many of us can't even begin to comprehend. And that's where... I think compassion and really is important for us and empathy to try to understand what another person's life must be like. Um, and so these and these issues, it's I don't cry very often, but <laughs> these these issues, sometimes they do really bring a tear to the eye, which which happens in usually the most embarrassing of moments for me, like during my <laughs> dissertation defense, when I started crying at the end of my dissertation defense. But but at the same time, I feel like we shouldn't be embarrassed. Like you said, like this should be an emotional topic. We should all cry about the fact that mm. there are people in the world who don't have enough to eat. Right. Well, that passion that you're talking about that you bring to this uh, obviously sounds like it's the thing that drives you. And I, if you ask me, I think we need more people like you uh, that can bring that passion and that uh, emotional connection to these things so that, uh, so that people you know, don't think of, of each other as separate or different or the other, as you pointed out. And, you know, in regard to that, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to just uh, mention a little bit of, at the bottom of the article uh, that you wrote, and it has to do with uh, Eisenhower again. And um, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about because he, you know, he commanded forces yeah. in the Second World War. And at the bottom of this article, it goes on to, to mention Uh, about what he says. I'm just going to read from the article. It says, In vast stretches of the earth, men awoke today in hunger. They will spend the day in increasing toil. And as as the sun goes down, they will still know hunger. And he observed that in 1958 in his speech. And he said, They will see suffering in the eyes of their children. Many despair that their labor will ever decently shelter their families or protect them against disease. So long as this is so, peace and freedom will be in danger throughout the world for wherever free men lose hope of progress liberty will be weakened and the seeds of conflict will be sown i thought that was uh, you know tied in well with what you were saying i think it's one of the it's, i think it's a beautiful quote mm-hmm. and i just wish and hope that around the world we make choices uh, to choose leaders who embody values um, that we can aspire to mm. like this. Because mm. I have in my work in other countries, um, I have seen what happens when people work hard and they see that no matter how, how hard they work, they will never receive any return on that. They will never see their lives improve. They will never be able to improve the lives of their children. And it creates this most tragic sense of fatalism to know that no matter how hard you work and no matter what you do, you will never be able to get ahead. And I think that that to me, that is a a violation of our human rights to be able to take that type of hope away from people. Mm. And I'd, I'd love to see us looking towards leaders and voting for policies that espouse values that we can all aspire to. 
Nicely said, Jessica. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and share your thoughts and uh, this article that we are speaking about in the uh, the conversation that you wrote uh, about the uh, the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize that went to the United Nations World Food Program and also uh, the work in other areas that you do and bringing attention to the hunger of the planet and the things that we can do uh, to actually make a difference. Thank you so much, David, for having me. It's been a pleasure to be able to talk about these really important topics. And I look forward to speaking with you again, perhaps in the next few months ahead. Maybe once COVID-19 has uh, dissipated, we can look further down the road and talk about maybe some some better things to come. It would be great to touch base with you. It would absolutely be my pleasure. Okay, great. You take care. Okay. Bye, David. Bye-bye. That's Jessica Eyes. She's a PhD uh, postdoctoral researcher with the Purdue Climate Change Research Center at the Purdue University and uh, at the Brian Lamb School of Communication. And she has interest in climate as well as food security, agriculture and global chronic stressors, which is what we've been talking about uh, to some degree as well. Been very nice to have her on the show. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Well, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Suresh Daniela. He is a Bayard Clarkson Distinguished Professor of Mechanical and Aeronautical Engineering. Wow. This is going to be a good in- interview, I think, folks. It sounds pretty interesting already, just with that introduction. And we're here to—we're going to be talking about an article he wrote in the conversation, and it's about, of course, um, airborne particles, especially around the COVID nineteen uh, situation. So, uh, Professor Daniela's research interests are in developing techniques for accurate characterization of airborne particle properties and understanding the fate of aerosol aerosol particles in the environment. And some of his current funding research projects include the development of sensors for airborne particle measurements, bioaerosol measurements, and aerosol flow modeling, as well as aerosol resuspension from surfaces and aerosol physics. Wow, a lot of uh, physics, a lot of aerosol stuff in there. But uh, in terms of the, because re- I'm, I'm thinking like when you're looking at something so small like aerosols, uh, they're very tiny, tiny particles, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you know, aerosol particles can be anywhere from a few nanometers. So, you know, if you have a collection of about ten, twenty molecules, that can uh, be defined as an aerosol particle. Be all the way up to hundred micron or so. And just for reference. The width of your hair is about 70 micron. So, so that's at the upper limit of these airborne particles. Anything bigger than that, you know, they drop out pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not uh, aerosol science. Anything smaller than a few nanometers becomes molecular uh, science. Mm. Um, with respect to biological particles, most of the biological particles that we are interested in, uh, you know, could range from uh, maybe 50 to 100 nanometers. So if you look at the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's about 130 nanometers. Um, and, uh, and, and it can go up to fungal spores that, that are, uh, you know, tens of microns. Mm. Um, so we're talking about two orders of magnitude in terms of uh, sizes. With the work that we do, we, we largely do work here with biosafety level one. And these are uh, organisms that are ubiquitous, present everywhere. And biosafety level two, which are reasonably safe to handle and so on. 
uh, once you get to three and four, then it gets uh, messy. And we work with other collaborators uh, mm. who are better equipped to do that. So in your study, because the article you wrote was all about how we now need to be aware of the airborne uh, particles that COVID-19 is spreading into rooms. So, for instance, if we're in a, a classroom uh, at a university with a professor and we have uh, super spreaders in there, uh, it's about the ventilation and how, how these uh, particles can, can suspend themselves in the air and then move around in the air. And where you're sitting might have an effect on that. And, of course, I can't help but think that, well, great, now we're, we're finally getting into this and we're into stage two again or, or back into, into the, the second wave of this. And, and now we're, we're getting more information that, it, that means our, our, our awareness has to be heightened once more. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I if I can just provide some background on this. Sure. Um, so you know, we we know that when we cough and sneeze, we we put out these particles, and yep. so that's why we we try and sneeze into our elbows and so on. Um, but it's it's also when we talk and sing and even just breathe, we we put these particles out, and these particles again range in sizes from all the way up to hundred micron, again width of your hair down to maybe about a micron or so. And these particles, when they approach a micron, they're invisible. So as I'm talking to you right now, I'm filling up this room with particles. Mm. And, and if, if I'm infected, if a person is infected, you know, these particles may contain, contain the virus, especially before you're symptomatic. Uh, most studies suggest that, you know, the virus is, is such that, uh, you know, it is, it is, it is now uh, put out in these particles. And the, the concern typically has been big particles, once bigger than maybe 30 microns, so, you know, approaching the width of your hair. And uh, these particles, uh, you know, contain more of these virus uh, and, and, and hence they're more likely to cause infection. Uh, but we can eliminate the threat by wearing masks and with social distancing. Mm. Uh, masks, uh, you know, pretty much of any make, uh, uh, cotton, obviously N95 is great, but even if you put some of these uh uh, quite porous cotton uh, uh, fabric uh, masks, uh, you will eliminate these bigger particles. They are trapped uh, uh, quite effectively. Mm. And uh, and if you stayed uh, six feet away, typically these particles would drop out, so you're not going to get a big dose of these big particles. The concern is, in addition to those big particles, we are also worried about the smaller particles, um, you know, 10 micron and smaller, uh, these particles may contain fewer virus particles, but if you're indoors for a long time and you, you had to breathe sufficient number of these particles, it might present a sufficient dose for infection. Mm -hmm. And these particles are not as effectively filtered by masks, uh, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're wearing them, uh, even, even when you wear them reasonably uh, tightly uh, because of leakages around your nose and so on, these particles can get through along with the air that might escape out. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, the bigger problem is, you know, we, we tend to wear our masks. Many of them, uh, uh, what I've observed is, you know, the masks are often worn loose or mm -hmm. uh, incorrectly. So these smaller particles are the ones that are of concern in terms of leak from there. And, uh, and, uh, and so in terms of uh, uh, ventilation, so what we studied was that if you put if it's, so we simulated the fate of these smaller particles. We put one to five micron particles, spread them around the room. We put a lot of sensors in to see, you know, how far out do they go? Because we have a ventilation system in these rooms that continuously brings in fresh air. Um, and what we observed was, you know, uh, so when we put these particles in, 
how long they remain in this room depends upon uh, the ventilation in the room, obviously. If we bring in uh, fresh air, if we bring in even filtered air, if you're recirculating filtered air, um, you are going to be continuously diluting it. And how much you bring in uh, uh, determines how long these particles will linger in the air. Just for example, a couple of numbers I'll put out. If, if you are typical uh, households, uh, you know, we, we, uh, there's an air exchange of about 0.3, which means it takes about um, 0.3 per hour, which means in about three hours, uh, the entire air in this house is exchanged once. Uh, and in that scenario, these particles can linger for an hour or two mm. because these are small particles. They don't drop out and you're not exchanging the air. So they can be there for a long time. Effectively means these particles spread out throughout the house and everybody uh, is likely to breathe in some of these particles that, you know, uh, mm. this infected person might put out. On the other extreme, uh, if you go to uh, uh, an operating room in a the hospital, there the air exchange rate is somewhere between 15 to 25. Mm -hmm. uh, so within about five minutes to uh, so the the five to ten minutes the the probability of catching a particle left uh, by a person uh, goes down close to zero mm. within five minutes uh, everything is uh, is essentially sucked out of the room and exchanged with uh, with uh, new air that's either filtered or fresh from the outside mm. and uh, uh, and in, in most spaces of course are somewhere in between uh, in many most of the classrooms the air exchange is between six and 10. So if you remember the house air exchange is about 0.3 mm. uh, and the, and the hospital is about uh, operating room 15 to 25. This is almost right in between. Um, and in here, what we observed was that it takes about 20 minutes for uh, the, the probability of uh, these particles that, you know, maybe one classroom leaves behind to be picked up by the next classroom uh, the it, it, after about twenty minutes, that probability goes down to less than three percent or so. Mm. So, uh, spacing classrooms or, if, or, or was one of the conclusions we we came at. You know, space them by about twenty minutes, depending upon the obviously the air exchange rate, um, and that will minimize cross infection. The other thing was about what you mentioned about where you sit in the classroom. So, most of the existing. Uh, models out there, uh, is, uh, they assume that the room is well mixed. It doesn't matter where you're in the room, you get the same uh, uh, particles. Uh, what we found is, again, the same air exchange rate. How effective is your ventilation uh, determines, uh, you know, what the fate of the particles in the room are. And if you're six feet away, in pretty much any air exchange rate, um, it, it, you're actually breathing almost the uh, same... Uh, particles, the small particles. For the small particles, being six feet away indoors was not very effective, um, independent of how good the ventilation is. But if you are 10 feet to 20 feet away, especially if you're 20 feet away and you've got a good air exchange rate of about 10, which is what a, an, uh, you know, a well-ventilated classroom would be, um, the probability, the, your, what you are getting as a dose from somebody, a super spreader speaking or talking or, or if there's a, you know, singing going on, um, sitting 20 feet away, you're getting about one tenth, one tenth the particles of somebody sitting maybe six feet away. Mm. And, and so, so distance does matter indoor if the ventilation is good. When the ventilation is bad, 
it did not matter. When the ventilation was even about three, which which is still about 10 times most indoor homes, um, uh, sitting 20 feet away uh, only cut uh, the your uh, exposure to about half of being close by. Now, when you are talking about that and you're talking about a super spreader or someone that is at the front of the room speaking, that's that's the sort of image I was getting from the article. But but what about the other people in the room? Should we then, in a, in a classroom where there are people and someone is presenting and speaking, what about the risk of the other people also in the room that are breathing and exhaling? And, you know, and should, so should everyone be then wearing a mask in those rooms to help keep that, uh, to keep, you know, keep themselves as safe as possible as well then? Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's a really interesting question in a couple of ways, right? So the wearing a mask does two things. It, uh, it, it minimizes the number of particles that, that we, uh, Exhale out, or or we put out when we talk, mm-hmm. um, or cough, and uh, and and so we are just minimizing the risk of everybody around us. But additionally, wearing a mask uh, uh, also protects you because it actually filters, uh, uh, you know, uh, most masks, even cloth masks, will filter down to one micron quite effectively, and uh, and so you are you are protecting yourself by wearing a mask. Uh, and but because we don't know exactly where the infected person might be, you would want everybody wearing a mask so that you're just cutting down the number of particles we're putting out. That is the biggest sort of that's a, that's the one the one factor that we can all control is how much we put out uh, in terms of particles, um, and and we can do that by wearing masks and mm. and uh, social distancing helps. But we don't know always what the ventilation mm. in the room might be, so you want to maintain the distance. Uh, but by wearing masks, what it means is you can linger in the room longer if everybody is wearing a mask because the total load of virus we put out is less. Um, and, uh, and, and by wearing a mask, you're protecting yourself because you're also breathing in fewer particles. Now, one of the most high-profile uh, scenarios of this is uh, the recent uh, exposure that we saw from Donald Trump, uh, President Donald Trump, and and his uh, his uh, uh, people that were in the room where it spread and and other people were infected. Uh, do we know much about the size of the room or the ventilation or how many people were in there and and how long they were in the room together? Um, we we don't know that. Uh, at least I don't I don't know that. Uh, there's obviously there was an outdoor element to the uh, to the meeting. Uh, I, I think you're referring to the uh, the, the meeting before the uh, Supreme Court uh, justice was selected right? or during the process. Mm-hmm. So there's an outdoor element to it, and in general, you would say the outdoor events are are a little safer because you've got ventilation in in the form of uh, a breeze that's blowing through. But by if you're again. If you're not socially distanced and you're constantly breathing somebody else's uh, exhalation and, and when they're talking and so on, or if you're on the path, again, if, if there's an airflow, you know, that, that just brings particles from a super spreader who's talking and it brings it into your breathing zone, the odds are high that you can, again, catch some of those particles, breathe in and catch an infection. Um, uh, but I know that that event also involved moving indoors and, uh, and, and because I don't know the ventilation uh, in there, it's tough to say, but, uh, but in general, um, if it's an indoor event, uh, and, and, and in most indoor spaces, the ventilation rates are rarely less than, uh, 
Uh, I mean, the ad exchange rate is rarely greater than 10. Mm. Um, and so, so you, it could be safely said that, you know, uh, unless uh, you are restricting your time, uh, the odds are, irrespective of how far you are from a person, if you're indoors, uh, you have exposure from that person's uh, uh, emissions. And uh, and the longer you are in, right, so even if, if you're 20 feet away and you're getting one-tenth of what the person is putting out, um, CDC says you can now be within six feet for 15 minutes. If you're 20 feet away and you're getting one-tenth and you're there for an hour and a half, uh, that is equivalent to being close up with somebody, uh, you know, close by within six feet with somebody. And so the risk mm-hmm. is pretty high indoors. Right. The indoor risk depends upon time and ventilation. Right. Greater the ventilation, longer the time. And more the people there are right. and, and, and fewer the masks, all of that increases the probability of, you know, an event like that. Yes. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Suresh Daniela. He is a uh, distinguished professor of mechanical and aeronautical engineering at Clarkson University in New York. We're talking about an article he wrote in the conversation about COVID-19 and where you sit in a room matters uh, during COVID-19. We're talking about air ventilation and aerosol particles, those around the size of the ones that can spread COVID-19. And uh, Professor, one of the things that you you talk about is resuspension. Is resuspension of these particles a concern with COVID-19? Yeah. Um, so uh, it is not clear if that is a concern. So in general... So resuspension would be as you walk around, we tend to resuspend and, 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 you know, bring stuff that's already on the floor back into the air. Mm. Um, it is, it is, uh, it is unclear, but potentially of concern. So if you take the biggest particles, I, we, we talked about how the biggest particles, uh, uh, might sediment and fall within six feet. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, uh, I mean, the, the odds are, so virus particles, you know, uh, don't like to survive outside a host cell for very long. So chances are, you know, they would, the, the, the chances of them being active outside for long is low. But if it's in a short time, you walk around and you're resuspending these particles. So that can, uh, that can, yes, result in a secondary, uh, exposure. So you can walk around, resuspend it, and you're breathing all the particles that are resuspended. Mm. Um, but again, it's not clear if the virus would be active and alive, so to speak, mm. uh, and so may, may or may not cause threat, and that's not known yet. But one other thing that the what walking around will do is just, it, it again, mixes up the air. So we talked about how if you're sitting 20 feet away from a person who's talking, singing, and likely to be a super spreader, your odds of, uh, uh, of I mean, your exposure is about one-tenth of being close by, but if there's a lot of movement, we are, we again, we are effectively mixing the air and somebody sitting far away is, uh, you know, they could be exposed to uh, the air from the, uh, from the person speaking because people, as we walk around, we are actually transporting the air and with it, all the particles to other parts of the room. Mm. The other thing I couldn't help but think about as I read your article was about ventilation itself. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, you point out that maybe if you're sitting in the corner of a room, the ventilation might not be as good. And so those particles might be suspended there and you might be exposing yourself a little bit more if you're there. Plus, if you're in the, in the direction in which the ventilation is flowing, you might be, you might be getting that, all those uh, particles flowing over you. And, uh, and I thought, well, gee, that, that, there are a couple of really interesting, uh, situations to think about and consider then. And I, and I started to think about the flow of the ventilation itself. And I thought, so what would be the ideal kind of ventilation you'd want to have? And the first thing I thought of was, you want it to go straight up, <laughs> away from everybody. It just goes up. But I went, well, I don't know. Maybe you're going to then start to resurface, uh, you know, some things, maybe a ventilation. I don't know. Do you have any sense of that? So actually, uh, again, a really good question. Um, the, uh, the, in the article we talked about, uh, you know, so if you're, if you're in a corner, so in this corner, sometimes you don't always have good, um, airflow in there. And, and so uh, again, it could be different in different spaces. Uh, but what we've noticed is that it, it, it can take in some ways, um, because the airflow, there isn't as much sometimes airflow going into the corners. They may actually get they may collect particles more slowly, but once they collect it, they also lose it more slowly. Um, and so just avoiding that is good because they don't get flushed as often. Mm. Um, but sitting near the vents, I mean, there have been, uh, there have been studies that have shown that uh, in, uh, in restaurants where, you know, where uh, the people who've gotten infected are those who've been in the pathway of, mm. of, uh, of air going towards a vent. Mm. Uh, and so especially when you have low ceilings and you, so you get this draft that, mm. that essentially moves flow, uh, through the room to, towards the vent. And if you're in that pathway, uh, you know, pretty much air from the rest of the room is guaranteed to sort of go over you. Um, but that's very specific to depending upon, you know, what the room, uh, vent locations are and so on. And we don't always have full knowledge of, uh, of the airflow. So we probably couldn't keep ourselves uh, safe from uh, all of those scenarios. But if you did have some control, you'd want to sit near an inlet uh, mm. vent where the flow is actually coming into the room, mm. not where it's going out mm. from. You're getting fresh air. You're not getting the air that um, is carrying all the particles from uh, everybody breathing out. Um, and, and, and actually a good example of this is uh, is uh, what... Uh, What's in uh, aircrafts? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, so in, in planes, uh, so the the typical ventilation system there is flow coming in from the top, mm-hmm. flushing in and going out through the bottom. Uh, the the return lines are typically mm-hmm. along the side of the hull mm-hmm. or in the you know right below the windows. Right. Um, and so so that actually is not so bad. You move from top to bottom. Uh, you don't get the resuspension that you mentioned about. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it flushes your Whatever you exhale and you put out is largely taken out with that downflow mm. towards the outs, uh, towards the bottom, and then it's re- it's filtered and recirculated back. So in general, uh, you know, uh, by most estimates, uh, uh, you know, aircraft uh, travel is relatively safe uh, because of the way that the ventilation is set up in there, and that might. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how easy it is to redo any space to give that kind of. Uh, mm. um, uh, you know, uh, filtration systems, but, you know, many labs and so on, we, we, they're designed. If you want to keep something, uh, protected and safe, you, you, you would have these sorts of laminar flow going from top to bottom. Yeah. 
In general, what is the ventilation? Is there one specific kind of, of generalized ventilation that we find in, uh, in buildings? Where, in which direction the air flows in and out? Um, so most, uh, again, if you look at big spaces like universities and malls and commercial real estate and so on, uh, there are guidelines from ASHRAE in the U.S. and there's very similar guidelines in Canada for uh, how much fresh air to bring in yep. uh, and how much uh, uh, recirculation air to bring in. Um, and, uh, and, and there are some design guidelines in how to bring it in in a way that it's diffused so you don't have a jet of this air coming straight right. at you. Right. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there's a lot of uh, flexibility in, in how uh, engineers can uh, engineer these uh, systems. Mm. Uh, but, but mostly uh, these days, uh, you know, they're, they're reason- if, you, if you take any of the new bills, they're reasonably well distributed. So you've got these inlets uh, that are that with diffusers that are in maybe three of uh, maybe in a couple locations two or three locations around the room and then a lot of exhaust vents um and uh and 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 but again I've, we have seen all sorts of designs uh, mm. uh you know ones where you've got one inlet one out uh there are uh, there's no standard actually uh, there's i mean there's guidelines on on what needs to be brought in and removed out uh, but how it's implemented is uh, is left to the uh you know, to, to the individual uh, mm. uh, architect or engineer. Mm. Uh, but what we have noticed is that uh, n- not not everybody has the same. Um, uh, I mean, even with these guidelines, you know, there are spaces. Uh, we've we've been to smaller offices and so on. Some offices have in but no out vent, so you got flow coming in and escape from under the door right. and out somewhere else. Right. And some have out but no in. Um, and right. one particular area of concern are, are corridors where, uh, you know, there's sometimes no in or out. Uh, right. yeah. and, and those areas tend to accumulate stuff. In yes, there. yes. Wow, interesting. Uh, yeah. Now, some of the funding areas uh, and research projects that you work on are with NASA and uh, with the U.S. Army. Um, all fascinating stuff. And this, of course, would all be a very great interest to them, the airflow and how these things uh, uh, suspend themselves. Absolutely, yeah. So we have uh, we've studied uh, how, you know, specialized COVID-19 chambers built to transport people on planes, how effective are they, you know, are, are they designed correctly to make sure that, you know, they don't contaminate, um, you know, uh, support staff who are coming in to bring them, or, or symbolic them, um, and a lot of that has to do with air flows and understanding how, what fate of particles are, um, and uh, yeah, so these, you know, this is uh, obviously right now very relevant, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, research. Hey, professor, I'd like to ask, how did you how did you get interested in this line of work? If you don't mind me asking, especially working yeah. with aerosols. <laughs> Um, um, well, it was, uh, just, you know, in grad, graduate school, uh, it was the most interesting project that was, uh, uh, I mean, the most interesting project that was proposed to me involved understanding, uh, just fate of particles in the atmosphere. And, um, and, uh, to me, you know, it was, it was, it was fascinating that, uh, you know, we can, we have got to, we have to study these particles that we cannot see, oftentimes cannot smell, um, and we've got to figure out what is happening with them. So it's a, it's a bit of a mystery uh, that needs to be, uh, you know, so we need to uh, sort of solve this mystery with all these tools and, and deduce from uh, um, 
deduce from our measurements what is happening. And to me, that was fascinating. In the end, did you get it right or wrong? Do you mm-hmm. know what's happening? Is all based upon, you know, looking at a vast amount of measurements, looking at uh, very different sorts of measurements and trying to come up with a story. Um, and for me, yeah, it was just fascinating that, uh, that you know, we can, we can uh, study something that is uh, invisible, uh, uh, you know, cannot be uh, seen and, uh, and, and, and we can, you know, use engineering tools and scientific uh, methods to sort of uh, arrive at, uh, at, at uh, deducing the story or, or uh, solving this mystery. That to me was just fascinating. Indeed, and and that was the other side of this, and that perhaps is another conversation we can have at a later date, and that is the the technical side of things, as you just mentioned, the engineering and the and what goes on and how we can see these invisible particles floating around. That's that all sounds very fascinating, and it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you on this topic today. Th- thank you, David. It was my pleasure to uh, be on the uh, uh, interview here, and uh, really, uh, I enjoyed this. Uh uh, conversation. Thank you. You're very welcome, and thanks again, and take care. Thank you. You too. Okay, Bye. take care. Bye-bye. Suresh Daniela, and he is a uh, professor of mechanical and aeronautical engineering at Clarkson University in New York. We've been speaking about an article he wrote in the conversation about uh, COVID-19 and where you sit in a room matters as far as uh, the airflow and being exposed to the COVID-19 virus uh, if someone is infected in there and how that affects things. A fascinating topic, and it's been a pleasure having him on the show. And it's always a pleasure to have you listen to the show each and every day. That is our show for today. And we look forward to having you back again tomorrow. We'll see you then. I'm David Moses. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.